Sometimes when I think about my own teaching, or maybe even sometimes when people have things to say about it, I wonder if it's a little bit too personal. And maybe it is, I don't know. Um, But what I do know is that what seems to be really useful to me and maybe to others is that it's pretty confusing being here. I mean, what is going on, really? You know, I mean, we call this a human existence and we have these things that we call bodies and we have lives and while we're living, things happen and babies are born and people die and it begins to seem pretty strange, actually. And I'm sorry to tell you, for those of you who are younger, it doesn't get any better. It just gets stranger and stranger. It's like, I don't know what's happening. So I think figuring out a way to be present with our lives and to chew on them and digest them as best we can and to I think for many people it's a it's a finding of meaning that begins to be really important what to have some sense that whatever it is that we're doing in this mysterious existence has some kind of meaning somewhere so as many of you know what I'm chewing on right now is my father's death and he died um, I was trying to think about this I think it's 17 days now on the 29th of January in the early hours of the morning in Maine and although I wasn't with him at the moment of his death um, I had been just a couple of hours before and spent many hours with him after he died as did many members of my family And so I am, um, I think, in full-on grieving mode and sometimes pretty sad and often very tired and um, really looking at what happened. Because it is this dying business. I I think babies are pretty amazing, but you at least have that long period of them hatching, you know, and you get the sense that something's happening. But that sudden emptying of a being that happens when they die is pretty interesting. So I've been talking about it quite a bit this week in different groups. Some of you have been there. And I thought what I wanted to do tonight was talk in a fairly reflective way. I don't know how long it will take. It might be short, it might be longer. I brought a number of poems and things that have come to me um, as a way of, of reflecting on this because I'm not the only one. And actually, I thought before I would start, I'm a little curious. So how many fellow orphans do I have in the room? People who have no living parents. So maybe about a third of us. And how many people, how many other people are missing just one parent? So that's another group. And then how many people have both parents still alive? 
Okay, so we're about a third, a third, a third is what it looks like, pretty much. So that's interesting. So many of you, I, I did that partly because I know that many of you have walked this territory, some of you ahead of me, um, and some of you have walked it in different ways. We could probably, in, in the group on Tuesday night here, we had some very interesting discussion, and people talked about many different deaths that had happened in their lives. And so I know that that's also undoubtedly true in this room, people who have had a lover or a child or a really good friend who have died. And um, so all of us, in one way or another, have encountered this mystery. So one of the first poems I wanted to read was one which Bob Stahl mentioned on Tuesday when he was here at the set. And it's a Mary Oliver poem, and it's called The Summer Day. And she says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So that's the question, isn't it? What do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And today, the last in a wonderful series of sympathy cards, someone sent me this wonderful card, which I'll put up here. You can come and look at it. It has a little child looking through a window at a, a a baby bird, and it says, show me a day when the world wasn't new. Show me a day when the world wasn't new. So, in thinking this week and talking with other students and in the other classes, it seems really interesting to see how... um, how important it is to allow our awareness of death, our own and that of the people around us, to impact our lives. And that when we do that, we live differently. And I think in the circle on Tuesday night, there were, I think, 17 or so of us here. Every person spoke to that, to how it is that we live, how we act, how we are differently 
when we take this into account. The Buddha says that the awareness of impermanence is one of the most important insights that there is in this practice. Really taking it in. And in the foundations of mindfulness, there's a whole section in which one goes in those days to the charnel ground, to the place where they put the dead bodies out, and you sit there, preferably for hours, days at a time, meditating on death, that this is going to happen to you. And really taking it in. Because so often, it's so easy, you know, the cat leaves the dead mouse at your doorstep, and we pick it up and toss it over, or do whatever you do with the dead mouse, or you see something dead by the side of the roadside, or whatever. And we, we don't take the time, even with these little beings who come our way, to ponder on the notion that this little mouse was running around very much alive just a couple of hours ago, having its life, doing whatever it is that mice do. And one of the most amazing pieces of the time with my father was that in the hours after he died, after the hospice nurse got there, um, we spent quite a bit of time bathing him and dressing him. And so we really got to work with this body. And if any of you have ever done this, you know that a dead body is very dead and very limp and not so easy to work with. And it was such a, an interesting and profound experience. And, and I've thought about it, about, well, what's my body going to look like when that happens, you know? And who will dress, will anybody dress me and wash me? I hope so. Um, it was very sweet and it was a wonderful thing to do. So beginning to let that come in, it's also been very sobering. He died at 92. You cannot say he died young. There's no way. He had a wonderful, full life. I put his um, obit out, out on the back table. Some of you I know are kind of curious. And he did many, many things. He was a public administrator in this country and overseas. He traveled to many parts of the world. He was an avid outdoors person. He was active practically up to the very end. He was really a remarkable being. He's 26 years older than I am. You know, I've been married this May for 25 years. It seems like a really short time. I can remember when I met Russell, which was more than was 27 or 28 years ago now. So this is pretty interesting to think, oh, I know this span of time, you know? And, and I might not even get that much. That's a very old age to live to. So maybe, maybe I have a year, or six, or maybe I won't make it home tonight. All of those things are true. And when we really begin to take in the reality of another's death, we begin to take in the reality of our own. And that changes our lives. How would you live 
your life differently? We asked that question Tuesday night. It's a very good question to ponder. Some people have done, probably people in this room have done the Stephen Levine Year to Live groups where where our group gets together. I recommend it. Feel free. It'd be great to have another one in this in this community. Where a group gets together and they plan to meet for a year. And so today's February 14th. It's not a good day to die on. Let's say February 15th. <laughs> it's kind of hard to die on Valentine's Day. And so they would pick a date. February 15th, 2009. That's my death date. And then they, as a practice live through the year looking at how would I live my life differently and I've watched people change their lives including interestingly enough my friend Noah Levine who's Stephen's son because they did that practice and they began to consider oh I I don't know so I might want to tell someone I love them my brother, for the first time ever, called my father up a few days before he died and told him that he loved him. He had never said that to him before. Amazing, no? So sometimes these things happen. You go, oh, I need to do this. Maybe you need to go to Africa, or maybe you need to go to base camp at Mount Everest, or maybe you need to change your job, or whatever it is you might do if you knew that you only had a short amount of time. And of course the art is to live as though you were going to die tomorrow and also to live as though you had for forever, right? And both things are true. And so we don't have for forever, but you know, a long time. So this practice of reflecting on death is one that is is deeply integral to Buddhist practice and one that um, I don't even know what I want to say it's mysterious and it's powerful and it changes us it's transformative I think when we do that So I'm just thinking what else I want to share with you. Another person who who died the same day that my dad did was um, a man whose name was Govind Mallory, and he was a member of the Mount Madonna community. And they put a program together at, for his service that happened last weekend. And it's got, I've got a number of quotes from his journals. And um, he says, Less and less to hold on to these days. Body parts, not what they used to be. <laughs> what then to hold? To hope on a memory is like clinging to a dream. There is no wisdom in that. When I look for peace, I find it in letting go of the attachment to desires or expectations. I must practice acceptance continually. Change careens wildly about us, engulfing us, 
and ensnaring us, testing us with new horizons and paradigms. Surrender as a practice is not what I had thought. Surrender is beyond thought, it just is. Who is there to surrender? What is there to give up and to whom? In a way, you know, you don't have to wait for someone to die to do this practice. It's a very good thing, actually. Because change that Govinda is pointing toward is the stuff of which death is made, and change is very much with us in our lives. So when we begin to notice how impermanent everything is. You notice the impermanence of a breath, you notice the impermanence of the sitting, you notice that relationships are impermanent or or the seasons come and go or the weather. We had beautiful spring-like weather a couple of days ago and thought we were all living in Los Angeles or maybe down in Mexico and today it feels more like we've gone up to Oregon and the weather's changed, and it, it keeps doing that, and and it's this constant process of, of shifting and balancing and letting go and accepting what is. And so the the I think the instruction of what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life really points us exactly toward can we meet every experience with that kind of interest and curiosity and, and, and acceptance? Because it is what it is. This is the way it is. You know, this is the way illness is. This is the way the loss of a job is. This is the way the end of a relationship is. This is the way the birth of a child is. And each one just exactly what it is and not more and not less. So maybe, I think what I'm going to do is read you one more poem. It's the one I read at his memorial service. It's another Mary Oliver poem. Actually, I'm going to read you two. This is a Jane Kenyon poem as well. You seem to be hearing from the women tonight. Jane Kenyon is a, a very wonderful poet who died of cancer herself, and she knew that she was ill when she wrote this poem. When she talks in the beginning of the poem about um, being healthy and being able to walk her dog and that kind of thing, and being all morning, she says, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed 
in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So we do that, don't we? We plan. Everybody got a plan for tomorrow, right? You've got your appointment book, you know where you're going to be at different times of the day, you know what your kids are doing, you know, you probably have a plan for the weekend. I have a retreat scheduled now, I think, for 2010. Is that strange? You know, who knows? Will I be here in 2010? Maybe, but maybe not, you know? And maybe some of you have things that are planned way out there, you know? But it might be otherwise. We don't know. So here's the last poem, and then we'll have some conversation. This is called When Death Comes. And I read it because one of the things I loved about my dad was that he really lived his life. He was into living. One of my favorite memories was when we were traveling in Asia once when he was quite young. I was quite a bit younger. And um, it was in his early years in that part of the world, and we were um, actually driving through the Khyber Pass from Afghanistan down into Pakistan. And um, he looked up, and there were there was a fort up on the cliff walls, you know, one of the old British forts, I presume, or something. And he was so excited. And what I remember him saying was, "Wow, he said, that's really keen." You know, was so keen, and he he just had that kind of enthusiasm for places and things, and and really tasting his life. So I chose this poem for that reason. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut. When death comes, like the measles pox. When death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does toward silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world.
you know, as sad as I am, it's interesting talking tonight. I also filled with so much gratitude that and and I know that it's extraordinary and not so common to be gifted with the father that I had the relationship with that I did that I really loved him he really loved me he had his moments and I certainly had my stuff with him when I was younger but we really came to a good place in these last many years and had some wonderful adventures together and I think that's not so common so those of you who are dads I hope you can make it happen for yourselves. And I think for the people who aren't able to have it, there's other things, you know, there's things I haven't had that other people do. But I am very grateful, and I know it's not so common. So maybe that's enough for me, and let's see if there's comments or questions or reflections of your own, because I'm not the only person who's looked at Or not. Please. My mother died about a little over a year ago. Mm. She was 95. Mm. And the thing I remember about her is, the, is how she led me into a spiritual life. Hmm. She was interested in that all her life. What a gift. Yeah. I'm afraid I can't say that about my dad. He was a religion is the opiate of the masses kind of guy. (laughs) Although he opened a little more, and and he actually has come here and attended our holiday potlucks and sittings a number of times. So towards the end of his life, he began to soften a little around there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Please. I just learned of the death of uh, just last week of uh, a man who was incredibly um, artistic and a free spirit who I worked and played with uh, 30 years ago mm-hmm. for about 10 years. And uh, unfortunately, I have not been in touch with him, but uh, after I learned of his death, I sent him an email. Because if there any spirit that would still get it, he would get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find myself sitting and talking to my dad. And sometimes he answers. And the words aren't, I don't know where they're coming from but they're not the ones I would have chosen. So this is interesting. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Please, Carmen. My mom died many, many years ago, but um, I found that um, that after she died, 
you know, very much spend a lot of time with her and watch her. She was very ill with cancer, but um, I dreamt a lot about her. Mm -hmm. She was mm -hmm. always in my dreams. Mm -hmm. Always coming, and now she's still, you know, throughout all these years, she comes and goes, comes and goes. And it's very interesting because she's always present. It is interesting, you know, many of you know that my husband and I um, teach um, workshops on working with relationship as practice. And one of the premises of the work that we do is that every couple's relationship has, has what in the jargon of that work we call the third, but the more than of the relationship. So you have the two people and then you have this third. And any of you who've been in an intimate relationship, so I presume this is everybody in the room, knows that place where one and one do not equal two. One and one equal three. And the relationship has its own <coughs> life, right? Well, you know, that's not just intimate relationships. And I've been actually thinking a little like, oh, I had a third with, this, with my father. The third is alive and well. The relationship is still there. You know, the love is still there. Nothing, that didn't die. He died, but the third is there. It's very interesting. So I offer that to you. It's, it's hot off the press. I haven't thought it through. So I'm still working on it, but I think it's a very interesting place. And so that's what you're speaking to, really. That you, that connectedness, that third of your relationship with your friend is still there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well maybe that's enough. I thank all of you for the enormous support that I have felt from this group. Some of it has been overt, and some of it I just have heard about and I've known that people were told and I really could sense it so I really want to thank you for that it made a huge difference during these last weeks so thank you um, I'm not sure I know very much about what's going on <laughs> that's good I guess um I think there is nothing immediate. Carla is starting a couple of classes. Let's see if I can find them here. There, and um, she's teaching one class, um, which is a book study group, and it's based on Tara Brack's um, radical acceptance. And it will be meeting on Friday afternoons um, from about one one fifteen to three thirty. So it's after the Friday sit. And um, it begins next Friday. So if you're interested in that, there's flyers over there on the table. And she's also going to be doing a course over several months um, working with the online course that James Barras has put together. James Barras is one of the um, Spirit Rock teachers called Awakening Joy. So it's really about finding joy in your practice. And if this is interesting to you... Um, There'll be a group of people kind of doing that course online and then meeting together as a support group to work with the material on the course. And that 
um, will start on the 26th, which I think is a Tuesday, and um, go for, looks like through November, once a month. So if that's interesting, those flyers are also over there. Um, and then <clears throat> um, two other things. One is that we will, in another week or so, have flyers for our Vipassana Santa Cruz retreat at the end of May at Land of Medicine Buddha. It's the Wednesday before Memorial Day, and it ends Memorial Day itself. I can't actually tell you what those dates are, but you, that will be enough to find it. And um, it's open to people from this community, and there's usually a sprinkling of other people who have attended my retreats, but it's mostly for Pusna Santa Cruz people. It's a wonderful chance to practice and be on retreat with the people that you sit with here, and um, a number of you I know have done it before, and I hope will come back, and I hope some of you will come for the first time. We only have room for about 45 people, so um, it will be a good idea to sign up. Um, and there is always um, a fairly good scholarship fund, so if money is an issue, please ask for a scholarship. So those flyers will be out. And then also, just because I did mention the couple's work, um, I am going to be doing one of those weekends in um, a couple of weeks earlier than the retreat in May. In case anybody's interested, you can talk with me about that. We still have room for one, maybe two other couples. So... Um. Okay, any other announcements? Bill, please. I believe Nicole's teaching a uh, retreat this uh, Sunday. No, she's not. Bob is. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so we have the third Sunday of the month. There's a half-day retreat. So the Sunday morning sitting, that's at 9.30. And then it's followed by a period of walking and another sitting and a bit of a Dharma talk. It, it ends, I think, around noon or 1.00. And Carla usually teaches it on the third Sunday of the month, and this Sunday could not, so Bob Stahl is teaching it. Thank you. Yeah. We didn't plan. Pardon? We didn't plan. No. And? Yeah. Um, I always love one of your, your favorite sayings, which is we inherit a space of generosity. Ah. Uh. And uh, everything you see around you and all teachings are the result of the generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.